Bending over is getting harder. <sighs> Good morning. Welcome to Northminster Church this morning. Whether you are in person or online, we are glad that you are here today on this, what is a beautiful day here in Louisiana. The nice, cool temperature. Hopefully, it'll stay around for a little while, right? I have several announcements for you this morning. The first is to remind you that after our service today is our, uh, excuse me, tonight at 6 p.m. is our agape meal. Um, So what I'm going to ask is after the service, not only that you admire the flowers from afar, but let them stay where they are, at least through our meal this evening, but that if you are of able body and can stick around to help with tables and chairs, please do so. We have the meal here in the sanctuary, and it's quite a bit of work to flip this space from uh, how it looks right now to what it needs to look like for the, what, 75 of us, or more than that, to have dinner tonight. So do please stick around and help with those tables and chairs. Uh, The office, church office, will be closed for Thanksgiving, so if you're in need of something, uh, the best way to get in touch will be to call or to text me. I'll be in Texas, but I will be available by phone. Uh, I also want to just point out to you the rest of the events coming up on the insert to your order of worship, including the Messiah coming up on the 12th, and then our youth will be doing a play for us during the Chili Supper on the 17th, so something to look forward to there. Yes? Okay. Wonderful. Great. So youth be here at five, and kids, if you can be here at five, even better. Uh, There will not be fellowship time after worship service today because we're going to be focused on getting the sanctuary flipped, so sorry, there will not be any snacks, but the sooner we can get things changed, the sooner you can get to lunch. Um, Let's see, what else have we got coming up? It's that time of the year where things get busy. I think that is everything. Oh, if you're visiting with us today, we're especially glad that you are here and welcome you to Northminster. Uh, We celebrate communion here every week, and when you come up, if you are in need of a gluten-free wafer, get my attention, and we'll make sure we get that for you. Um, And just come on up, follow the person in front of you, or if you need printed instruction, those are in your order of worship. And I think that is everything I wanted to announce. So let's do this. This is going to be a hectic week for many of us. So before we get to all of that, let's take a deep breath together. Because whether we're traveling, whether we're staying here and cooking and cleaning our houses and just trying to get everything spick and span for company to come over, this can be a lot of work to get ready for these big holidays. So take a moment to breathe in, close your eyes if that helps, and breathe down from your diaphragm, from your tummy, not from picking up your shoulders, and breathe in the joy of this place, breathe in a little bit of quiet before a week of work. As you breathe out, breathe out your to-do list, breathe out the groceries that need to be purchased, breathe out the laundry that never ends. Breathe in again, Know that whatever you bring with you today, God sees it, and God will help you carry it. Breathe out again. 
Let go of as many distractions as you can. And as you breathe in one last time, know that that breath comes from the God who loves you just as you are. And then if you would, please join me in our call to worship. Why are you here? Why are you here? Why are you here? God says, I am glad you are here. Watch. Listen. Watch. Listen. This is holy ground. Take off your shoes. Cover your face. This is why we are here.
Good morning, young friends. How are you today? Good. Who here is out of school for a few days? Anybody? Yeah, very exciting. And who can tell me why? Why? Raise your hand. Thank you. Wait till I call on you next time, though, okay? All right, put your hands down, because he answered for us. Thanksgiving. It's Thanksgiving time. And who knows your Thanksgiving history? Who celebrated the first Thanksgiving? Anybody know? Who celebrated the first Thanksgiving? Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, so we talk about the Indians and the pilgrims. Another word, you learned that at school. Another word for Indians, put your hand down for me, is natives. Americans, some of the first Americans. So I'm going to share this book with you. This was actually written by a Native American chief. Yep, his name was Jake Swamp. And this is the book. It's called Giving Thanks. Now, I don't have time to read you the whole thing, so we'll read part of it, and you can look at it later. But I want us to think about that the first Thanksgiving wasn't just about the pilgrims. It was also about the native people who were there and who were very, very helpful. So this is a book about giving thanks. Let's do it after, okay? You can tell me after. To be a human being is an honor, and we offer thanksgiving for the gifts of life. Mother Earth, we thank you for giving us everything we need. Aren't those pretty pictures? I think the artwork in this book is very pretty. Yeah, she has a baby on her back. Did y'all see that? Thank you, deep blue waters around Mother Earth, for you are the force that takes thirst away from all living things. We give thanks to green grasses that feel so good against our bare feet for the cool beauty you bring to Mother Earth's floor. See how pretty that is? Yeah. Thank you, good foods from Mother Earth, our life sustainers for making us happy when we are hungry. Fruits and berries, we thank you for their color and sweetness. We are thankful for good medicine, uh, for good med- thankful to good medicine herbs for healing us when we're sick. Doesn't that fruit look good? Yeah. Thank you, all animals in the world, for keeping our precious forests clean. All the trees in the world, we are thankful for the shade and warmth you give us. Thank you, all the birds in the world, for singing your beautiful songs for all to enjoy. See the birds up here flying? And that's a moose right there. And that's some kind of, that's a white-tailed deer right there. Thank you, Grandmother Moon, for growing full every month to light the darkness for children and sparkling waters. Do you see the face in the moon? We give you thanks, twinkling stars, for making the night sky so beautiful and for sprinkling morning dewdrops on the plants. Isn't that pretty? Yeah. Yeah. Last page. Spirit protectors of our past and present, we thank you for showing us ways to live in peace and harmony with one another. And most of all, thank you, Great Spirit, for giving us all these wonderful gifts so we we will be happy and healthy every day and every night. Isn't that nice? 
So I wanted to read you this book to remind you, like I said, that Thanksgiving wasn't just about the pilgrims. It was also about the native people who were there and who helped the pilgrims out a lot. But also to help us remember that you can be thankful for all sorts of things. Because we tend to be thankful that we're not in school, right? Or that we don't have to get up early in the morning. You get to sleep late. Or we're thankful that we get to have dessert. Yeah? But you can also be thankful to God. You can be thankful to God like the people in this book for a beautiful day, for sunshine, for animals. So I want you to think about this week all of the things, not just like the nice holiday things, but all of the things we're thankful for. Okay, I'm going to let both of you talk and then we're going to be done. So you were waiting, so go ahead. What do you want to say? You did? So you've seen this book before. Okay. What about you, Ms. Ellery? That's right. Anybody can celebrate Thanksgiving. It doesn't just have to be... That's right. That's right. Right. It's always important to remember people who don't have as much family on Thanksgiving and help them out. Okay, so think about all of the things you can be thankful for this week, okay? Now, we're going to say our prayer, turn around, face the congregation, please. Keep your hands to yourselves. Sit up nice and straight and tall on your bottoms. Sit up nice and straight and tall. I will say the first line. You say it back to me nice and loud. Adults, you're welcome to join in. I see the face of God in you. The love of Christ comes shining through. And I am blessed to be with you. Oh, holy child of God. Amen. You can go back to your seats now. Please walk.
reading from the gospel according to John. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. The Gospel of our Lord. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we remember this morning that the word angel, which we find in Elijah's story, originally meant messenger. So we pray for God angels on this earth. And we thank you, loving God, that you do not leave us without helpers. We thank you for your special agents, those guardian angels both human and heavenly, who never cease to care. Wherever there are situations of confusion, wherever doubt proliferate and anxiety spawn, we ask that you send in your angels of light. Wherever people are crippled by guilt or deeply regret damage to others, which they can never rectify, we ask that you send in your angels of mercy. Wherever there is ignorance and deceit, corruption and rapacious greed, we ask that you send in your fiery angels of judgment. Wherever ignorance reigns or superstition cripples individuals or communities, we ask that you send in your angels of truth. Wherever persons or nations become obsessed with aggression or resort to terrorism or warfare, we ask that you send in your agents of peace and goodwill. Wherever families are at loggerheads or in the workplace, folk feel alienated from one another, send in your angels of reconciliation. Wherever people see their future as bleak or dangerous and fall into the trap of inertia or despair, send in your angels of hope. Wherever the church becomes exclusive, or gets caught up in its own regulations, traditions, or inflexible dogma, send in your angels of reformation. Wherever ministers lose their passion for the gospel or congregations become self-satisfied or apathetic, send in your angels of rebuke. Wherever there are people who are afflicted by disease or injured in accidents, who struggle against mental illness or suffer from criminal violence, send in your angels of healing. Wherever the dying endure fear or pain and the bereaved either shed hot tears of fresh grief or endure long-term loss of a partner or friend, send in your angels of comfort. Loving God, Lord of all the messengers of grace on earth and in heaven, 
Hear our prayers and enlist us within your ranks of caring angels. We ask all these things through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our inspiration. Amen. reading from 1 Kings. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. He got up and fled for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. He left his servant there. Elijah went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a solitary broom tree. He asked that he might die. It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly, an angel touched him and said to him, Get up and eat. He looked, and there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him and said, Get up and eat, or the journey will be too much for you. He got up and ate and drank 
Then he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. An ancient reminder of the importance of rest and nourishment. Thanks Thanks be be to God. God. Let's pray together. O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. And may we hear a word from you today. Amen. So on this Sunday before Thanksgiving, I wanted to tell you a little bit about Thanksgivings uh, with my mother's family when I was growing up. We spent most every Thanksgiving uh, of my childhood, particularly my teenage years, at my granddaddy's house. For several years, that was in Memphis. They lived in uh, Georgetown, or Germantown, excuse me. Uh, And then he and his wife moved to Arkansas, back home to Arkansas, where my mother's family is from, and lived in Fairfield Bay, which is in a beautiful part of the state, if you're familiar with it. And I have some wonderful, wonderful memories from those gatherings. Spending time with my older cousins, I'm the youngest on both sides of my family. Seeing my granddaddy in the Christmas parade with the volunteer fire department, throwing candy to kids. Singing carols around the piano after dinner was over, playing Twister with my cousins, which never went well, but we had a wonderful time. (laughs) Waking up to smell cornbread, which my granddaddy made faithfully and without a recipe every morning. But there's some not-so-happy memories, too. Some complicated memories. You might have noticed I said my granddaddy and his wife moved home to Arkansas. That's because my grandmother, my grandmother Joy, passed away from cancer when I was a baby. And my grandfather remarried quite quickly after her passing to his third wife. Uh, We not so lovingly now call her Voldemort, if that gives you uh, some idea of her effect on the family. But it would be fair to say and I'm I'm trying very hard to be fair, that intentionally or unintentionally, she brought with her some challenging family dynamics that my grandfather then reinforced. The most painful of these was that my mom and her siblings were expected to avoid talking about my grandmother at all costs, so as not to upset the new wife. Now, as you might expect, this unspoken but very official edict was the cause of considerable hurt feelings, tense moments, and not uh, a few tears. I remember driving home several times when my mother cried most of the way home. Add to this my granddaddy's unspoken alcoholism, which I am convinced uh, was at least partially to do with his multiple tours of Vietnam and you had a recipe for some climactic family gatherings. Why am I telling you this? Uh, Well, in part, to assure you that if you're headed to a family gathering next week that has the potential to be emotionally taxing, you're not alone. And your family isn't weird or even that dysfunctional. I have so many more stories I can tell you. (laughs) I'm also telling you this to get you to think about what you will do if there is a big blow-up. How you will take care of yourself if emotions run high. And what to do if your best option is to just get away from the conflict. 
Because that's what Elijah does in this morning's story from 1 Kings. He gets away from the conflict. Now, to be fair, Elijah's emotional distress is to a certain extent of his own making, and he doesn't take very good care of himself in these verses. If God had not been looking out for Elijah, Elijah would have been swallowed up in his own wallowing. But let me locate us in the text to explain what I mean. So, we are once again in the book of 1 Kings, and perhaps this is a story you have not heard before, just like the story of Rehoboam from a couple of weeks ago. But we have moved from the southern kingdom of Judah with Rehoboam, hopefully you remember that from two weeks back, to the northern kingdom of Israel with the prophet Elijah, who was going toe-to-toe with King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. The flashpoint of their conflict is that King Ahab accuses Elijah of being the troubler of Israel because the king sees that it is Elijah's fault that there has been a three-year drought. In response, the brash Elijah very bluntly says to the king, I am not the one who has caused trouble in Israel, but you and your government. You've dumped God's ways and commands and run after the local gods, the Baals. Elijah then, wisely or unwisely, challenges Ahab to a contest, more or less, between Yahweh, God, and the god Baal and his queen, worship, and worse, who they have been leading all of their people to worship. The test is to see which god will engulf a bull in flames first. And as Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann notices, this story reads like a showdown between neighborhood bullies that revolves around shows of raw power. Now, I'll give you the short version. The short version, which happens before this chapter, is that after hours of prayer, bloodletting, so cutting their own skin, from the Baal priests, and every religious trick and strategy they knew to make something happen on the altar, nothing does. Baal is absent, silent, indifferent, unresponsive, uncaring, and unwilling to answer. His devotees are abandoned to their own devices. Elijah then has the people gather around him, builds his own altar, and has the people douse it with water three times. With the altar completely soaked, Elijah then calls to the Lord in prayer, and immediately the fire of God falls onto the altar, completely burning it up. But Elijah doesn't stop there. He hasn't quite proven his point. So to continue, he then orders all of the Baal prophets killed. And as the message translates it, they massacred the lot. It's not a happy story. And as you might expect, neither this show of Yahweh's power nor this very violent killing of the king and queen's priest goes over very well. This morning's verses uh, pick up with King Ahab returning to Queen Jezebel and filling her in on what has happened. Her response is important um, because as a Phoenician, she herself was a Phoenician, Baal worship is Jezebel's native religion. And she is the one who has introduced this to the king and therefore to all of Israel. And Elijah's killing of the Baal priest is not only a blow to her personal power, 
especially with the people, the priests were more or less members of her entourage. There's some disagreement about whether or not she chose a lot of these priests herself. Thus, their deaths is an attack upon the queen. And in response, she sends a messenger to Elijah threatening his life. Now, you might wonder why the queen sends this messenger as they serve as enough warning for the prophet to flee. If she really wanted to hurt him, why did she warn him? Surely she wasn't going to waste time on a warning. She would just have him executed. Perhaps she wanted to scare Elijah into looking over his shoulder. Perhaps she wants him to live in fear or even go into hiding. We don't know exactly what her motivation is, but Elijah takes this threat seriously and runs for his life. He takes himself out of this conflict and says, I'm out of here. Now, I want to pause and consider this question. What did Elijah expect? Really, what did he expect with this grand show of God's power and this very violent killing of all of these priests? He not only showed up the deity, the people and the monarchs embraced, he ordered the killing of an entire group of people. We don't know exactly how many priests were killed, but that's not the point. Rather, the point and the place of struggle in this is that Elijah doesn't hesitate to be violent. He doesn't hesitate to have these priests killed, and God never condemns him for this choice. I'll be honest, I struggle. I struggle with what we should think and feel about that. I also struggle to understand how Elijah thought his showing up of the Baal God and killing the priest would help his situation with the king and the queen. Surely he had enough foresight to see that the queen, Queen Jezebel, a lifetime worshiper of Baal, would not react well to this and certainly would not appreciate the killing of her priest. This is not going to help her convert to following Yahweh. And although Elijah has proven his point, more than proven his point, and shown everyone that Yahweh is the God of Israel, his moment of victory has not done anything to affect the queen or her power. And because he hasn't affected the queen or her power, he hasn't changed her mind, he probably has made her an even more faithful follower of Baal, he flees. The text tells us that Elijah goes all the way to Beersheba, which is south of Israel. And it is so far south that Elijah has completely left the country and is now in Judea. So he hasn't just gotten out of town. He has run to another kingdom to get away from Queen Jezebel. He then leaves his servant and continues on into the wilderness alone, where we're told he sits under a broom tree, which is actually a type of a really big bush. So imagine he's sitting under a really big bush. Sitting there alone, Elijah asked to die, for he is no better than his ancestors, and he falls asleep. He's quite tired. He wakes up to an angel telling him to eat. There's a cake that has been baked on a hot stone, and there are jugs of water. Neither, of course, were there when he fell asleep. After eating, Elijah falls asleep again and is again woken up by an angel telling him to eat and drink. But the second time, the angel's message is a bit longer, and Elijah is also told he needs to, go, he needs to eat 
to survive the journey ahead of him. So Elijah eats and he drinks. And on the energy of this meal, he travels 40 days to Mount Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai, where he finds a cave and he sleeps more. Now, if we continued reading, we'd have heard the beautiful verses about God coming to Elijah in a still small voice. But after consideration, I, I had to stop at verse 9 because we sometimes move over this part of Elijah's story too fast. And I think that's a shame because there are some elements here that are important. First, this part of Elijah's story conjures images of the Hebrew Bible, other, other images from the Hebrew Bible, such as the story of Jacob fleeing into the desert to escape Esau, his brother. Then there's the connection to the Israelites and God providing them manna from heaven as Elijah has provided this cake. There are also similarities between Elijah and Jonah and Jonah sitting under the vine, which God then sends a worm to kill to prove a point about who's really in charge, just as God sends an angel to Elijah to feed him rather than letting him die. And of course, there's a connection between Moses and Elijah, both ending up at Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. And speaking of Mount Horeb, I don't know if you noticed this, no one tells Elijah to go there. He's not commanded to go to what the text all often refers to as God's mountain, where Moses spent so much time before him. In fact, it's only after the angel provides Elijah with food and a little motivation that he gets up and he starts heading toward Horeb. This is striking because, as my favorite commentators pointed out in their podcast this week, Bible Worm, the one I use often, when you're in trouble, you go where God is. When you're in trouble, you go where God is. So without conscious thought or a clear plan, Elijah puts himself in a place to encounter God for his wish to die is overhauled by the Lord, and for him, this journey ends in a place that is defined by being a site where God and humanity have met before and have been in conversation. But notice that God finds Elijah in that moment when he would have given up on life. Notice that despite Elijah's spoken desire to die, God provides him with nourishment that he needs to survive. Notice that it is God's messenger that changes Elijah's focus and supports him on this journey. In fact, God never loses sight of or concern for Elijah, no matter how the prophet is feeling about himself. When I was a kid, my dad was a big Robert Fulgham fan, Anybody remember Robert Fulgham and all the books he put out in the 90s? He read most of his books. Um, if you're unfamiliar with the name, Robert Fulgham is an, an author, mostly of nonfiction. Uh, he's an alumnus of Baylor University. Both of my parents went to college. And arguably, his best-known book is called All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. That makes it more familiar. And it's based around this credo. The whole book is based around this credo. All I really need to know about how to live and what to do and how to be, I learned in kindergarten. 
Wisdom was not at the top of the grade school mountain, but there in the sand pile at Sunday school. These are the things I learned. And he gives a list. That list includes these items. Share everything. Play fair. Don't hit people. Don't take things that aren't yours. Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Say you're sorry when you hurt someone. Warm milk and cookies are good for you. Take a nap every afternoon. And then my personal favorite. When you go out into the world, watch out for traffic, hold hands, and stick together. Friends, I think we can make an addition to Fulgham's credo. And I think it's this. When life is scary and you don't know where to go, go to where God is. When life is scary and you don't know where to go, take a nap and have a snack. When you don't know what the future holds, look to God and take a nap and have a snack. When you're ready to give up, take a nap and have a snack. And when you just don't know what else to do, not a bad idea to take a nap and have a snack. Now, that sounds silly, but let me tell you why I'm saying that. We make better choices when we aren't hungry or tired. Our heads are clearer when our stomachs aren't rumbling and our eyelids don't feel like sandpaper. We are kinder, more generous people when we can focus on others' needs rather than our own. That requires us to take care of ourselves. And that's not selfish. But yes, there is privilege to being able to eat when we're hungry and sleep when we're tired. A a privilege people struggling with poverty or living in areas of conflict simply don't have. We can't lose sight of that, of the blessing of food in our refrigerators and access to a safe bed and a safe place to sleep, particularly as we head into this Thanksgiving week. But the good news this morning is that no matter how many times we need to step away from the conflict, no matter how many times we need to stop for a nap and a snack, God is with us. Even when we only wake up long enough to eat and then roll over to go back to sleep, God is with us. Even when we don't know where we're headed, God is with us. God will feed us. God will never Even if you want God to, God will never leave you alone. This was God's promise to Elijah so long ago. It is the same promise God gives us and the promise of all generations that will come after us, napping and snacking and being found by God. Amen.
As we come to this time of communion, we remember that this is the table of the heavenly feast, the joyful celebration of the people of God. Christ invites everyone to eat of the bread of life, to drink of the cup of the new covenant, for as Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Those who come to me shall never hunger, those who believe in me shall never thirst. This is not my table. This is not Northminster's table. This is Christ's table. We are the guests and Christ is the host. There is a seat here with your name on it. So kick off your walking shoes. Make yourself comfortable. This is holy ground. All are wanted and all are welcomed here with our doubts and our shortcomings, our failures and our griefs. No matter what you bring with you to this table, you aren't just tolerated. You are overwhelmingly welcomed and wanted. Thanks be to God for a love like that. And now if you would, please join me in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The night before Jesus died was a solemn time around the table. Because of his relentless pursuit of love, he would be seized by those in power. But before he was taken, Jesus introduced this meal to his followers. For even though he knew the end was coming, Jesus joined with those he loved and knew best. And as the night lengthened, he took a simple portion of bread. He blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples saying, remember me. And then when the meal was over, Jesus picked up a cup, he filled it with wine, and he blessed it. And during his blessing of the cup, Jesus remi reminded the disciples that he would go to the ends of the earth out of love for them. My friends, Christ makes the same promise to each and every one of us. Thanks be to God. Amen.
And now hear this benediction. May God bless you with a distaste for superficial worship so that you will live deep within your soul. May God bless you with anger at prejudice so that you will work for justice. May God bless you with tears for those who sorrow so that you will offer comfort. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in the world. Go be salty. Amen.